We're in Genesis chapter 30. We're going to be reading through 1 through 24. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, give me children or I shall die. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel and he said, am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Then she said, here is my servant Bilhah. Go into her so that she may give birth on my behalf that I may have children through her. So she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife and Jacob went into her. Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged me and has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore, she called his name Dan. Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, with mighty wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister and I have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali. When Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Then Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son, and Leah said, Good fortune has come, so she called his name Gad. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son, and Leah said, Happy am I, for women have called me happy, so she called his name Asher. In the days of the wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, Please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, it is, is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? Rachel said, Then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. When Jacob came from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, You must come in to me, for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night. God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my wages, because I gave my servant to my husband. So she called his name Issachar. Leah conceived again, and she bore Jacob a sixth son. Then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honor me because I have borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulun. Afterward, she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. Then God remembered Rachel. And God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And Joseph, and she called his name Joseph, saying, May the Lord add to me another son. Word of God, you may be seated. As we move further into the narrative of Jacob's life into chapter 30. This is a section of scripture dealing with Jacob's family, and it's really dysfunctional. You have uh, one, one man and one guy and four baby mamas. If this was in the 90s, you'd think you'd be watching this on Jerry Springer or Maury Povich, except Maury would tell him every time, you are the father. The Bible really doesn't shy away from the sins and the other chaos of those that God chooses to work through. It is to show us the greatness of God in the midst of human disobedience, human wickedness, and yes, human stupidity. In this whole chapter, in chapter 30, and even the portion that we will read next week, it is really, it's a descriptive, not a prescriptive passage. We see what did happen, not what should have happened. Because what does happen in chapter 30, and really in Jacob's life so far, is that 
he ignores the hand of God and really prizes his own craftiness. Two chapters before this, or yeah, two chapters before this, he has a dream. In the dream, God visits him. There's the stairway to heaven. And after this incredible experience, his response is, if God will, and then he repeats the promise of God. He says, if he'll do this, then he will be my God. He's so far, he is living the life that I think most live with no thought given to the hand of God who supplies, protects, and guides. Entire civilizations are ripped down because of this sin of pride. And we will see as we go through this chapter, the incredible chaos in Jacob's life by doing things his own way. Abraham Lincoln, in a statement on the National Day of Prayer during the Civil War, had said this, We have been the recipients of the choicest bounties of heaven. We have been preserved these many years in peace and prosperity. We have grown in numbers, wealth, and power as no other nation has ever grown. But we have forgotten God. We have forgotten the gracious hand which preserved us in peace and multiplied and enriched enriched and strengthened us. And we have vainly imagined in the deceitfulness of our heart that all these blessings were produced by some superior wisdom and virtue of our own. This is how he felt during the Civil War. We don't even have a category for this anymore. We're so far beyond this of giving God honor for the blessings of this nation that you don't even see many, many politicians, even when they're trying to butter up to the Bible belt, actually acknowledge God as the one who gives us the increase of peace and prosperity and, and all those blessings that God gives us. And you have to believe, believe that America, we will pay for this. Abraham Lincoln, in his second inaugural address, actually made the connection between America's unfaithfulness and the Civil War that we are going under. It is a great warning to us today. We see this in the life of a family. Believe me, you'll see this in the life of a nation. Flavius Josephus, the Jewish historian, writing about the fall of Sodom and Gomorrah, said this, about this time, the Sodomites grew proud on account of their riches and their great wealth. They became unjust toward men and imperious towards God, insomuch that they did not call to mind the advantages that they had received from him. He has very similar things to say about the Tower of Babel. So you might want to ask yourself, when was the last time you thanked God for what you have? Or are you falling into the same trap Jacob is where you thank yourself? It is my effort. It is my, it's my, it's my ingenuity that causes these things. Jacob will fall, will fall so hard during this. There's such chaos in his family from his attitude here where he does not acknowledge God as the one who gives. Jacob is not in a place of faith, but of works. He looks to handle every problem on his own and denies God credit. I said it last week, I'll say it this week, and I'll say it probably many weeks, but God doesn't need you to make things happen. He just wants you to obey. We put so much pressure on ourselves. I need to be the one who fixes this in my family, in my church, in my nation, in my county, in the school. And it becomes overwhelming, but God just wants us to live a life of day-to-day obedience. And he has the rest. He tells us to put on the armor of God, not to find the devil and give him one for, but to put on the armor of God and to stand against the devil's attacks. Last time on Patriarchs. 
What's last time on patriarchs? I want to go all the way back to Abraham. We have Abraham and Isaac. And here's the simple truth. What's tolerated in one generation is celebrated in the next. What's tolerated in one generation is celebrated in the next. We are living in a time of that. Because I remember back when I was William's age, 13, the great debates, especially within churches, when it came to things like the way God views sexuality. And I remember people at the time saying it's a slippery slope and people were like, oh, that's a logical fallacy. Well, it's more of like a water slide than a slippery slope, really, when you get, when you get to this time, right? That there is no perversion that is not, not just tolerated, but celebrated. And if you don't celebrate it, now you are the one in the crosshairs. What is tolerated in one generation is celebrated in the next. So many of the bad choices of Abraham and Isaac, they will be multiplied in Jacob. Then in Jacob's sons, they will be multiplied again. In Abraham, um, the multiple wives and the concubines, concubines is multiplied in Jacob. In Isaac, Jacob learns to have favorites. It's almost like he's pitting his wives in this little portion of scripture against each other. And then even, even as he's been called Israel, he comes to a place of faith. He still can't help but have favorites amongst his sons. He learned that from Isaac. Look at our nation. What we tolerate in one generation is now a law and must be bowed down to in this generation or you will face the terrible wrath. They have set up their images of gold and when the bell rings, you better bow down and and proclaim that as Lord or there will be consequences. Me and Becca, we watched a video. It's a documentary called The Essential Church. And it was a reminder about during COVID that there were some churches, especially in Canada, where Canada was a lot more draconian when it came to whether churches get to meet or not, who said, no, no more, we're meeting. And their pastors were locked up, put in maximum security prison, humiliated, paraded around, but they decided, no, church is essential. God and not Caesar is the Lord of the church. God and not Caesar is king of the church. What was tolerated in one generation is celebrated in the next. We would miss something very significant here if we only look at the dysfunction of this family. This is also a chapter of incredible blessing for Jacob. Yes, in his disobedience, God still blesses him because God's blessing does not depend solely on us. His blessing, he said to Abraham, was by himself. So the blessing is not according to the behavior, but according to faith that it must be seized. And Jacob, yes, one day will, not in this chapter, but will. Jacob having 13 children in this, in this chapter right here, um, this chapter is 12 children, will be 13 children all in all. It's a major blessing. And I just want to say something in our culture. Our culture sees children as a burden. Unless you have them in exact right time, in exact right proportion, we, our culture says that they are a curse, but the Bible says they are a blessing. They are an absolute good. An absolute good. Not under certain circumstances, but always a blessing. And these, these 13 children, they are a blessing. Even though some of them are quite a headache, they are a blessing from God. God sees them as an absolute good. I remember a professor in college, he had told us that there's no such thing as illegitimate children, just irresponsible parents. So as we look at Jacob's children, I made a graph for everybody today. If you can pull up the graph, make sure it's that first one. 
Yay! All right, fantastic. Um, as we go along, we'll be filling out this graph, and I know all of the students are like, okay, school's not for another week, Pastor Jason. Why are you doing this to us? I think this will help as we go along. Instead of you just listening to me, you can have a visual as well. So far in the narrative, we have, um, we have four sons of Jacob. We had Reuben, the oldest, and his name means see, and Leah named him that because maybe her husband would see now. He'd see her. He wouldn't overlook her anymore. Simeon means hearing. It sounds like hearing. Sorry. It's a, it's a, uh, it's a cognitive. But anyway, that, that's another word. Anyway, um, it means hearing. She was hoping her husband would now hear her, not just ignore her all the time. Levi, it sounds like the word for attached. Maybe her husband would finally be attached to her. And then finally, she names the fourth one Judah. And Judah is where the Messiah comes from. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. The Messiah comes through Leah, the older, the unloved, rather than the younger, Rachel. And his name means praise. So last chapter ends off on a very high note. This chapter is going to be a bit of a low note. And actually, it's going to be lower and lower and lower and lower until we get to the, into verse 24. Um, God's design for marriage. When the marriage debate was happening in America, the question came up, what is a marriage? Who gets to define what a marriage is? In churches, we ask the question, what is a biblical marriage? One argument that came up from people supposedly who are in the church is when we talked about a biblical marriage, they would say that a biblical marriage included polygamy, and they would use Jacob as a proof text for this. Here's a problem. In churches so long, we shied away from these issues. So when they come up in the culture, people of faith, they have no idea how to answer this. People are like, oh, I'm a Christian like you. In the Bible, you know, you see all this dysfunction right here with the polygamy. So how can you say that these two, these two blokes or these two ladies who love each other shouldn't be married? Well, here, first of all, let's just go to that very argument right here. The Bible is not propping up polygamy as anything that's good. It did happen. It doesn't mean it should have happened. People use certain verses to, as a proof text to try to prove what the, the assumption they've already made instead of looking at what the scripture actually says. This proof texting, one, it leaves out the context. This is descriptive, not prescriptive. Descriptive mean this is what happened, not necessarily this is what should have happened. Two, if we look at this narrative, we actually read this story. Look at the misery having multiple spouses is for everybody that's involved. It, nobody's having a good time with this. It's a very, it's, it, if it's anything, it's a warning not to do the same. Furthermore on that, Jacob's father, Isaac, has one wife. He actually follows the creation mandate. That's the third point I want here, is that the creation mandate is one man, one woman for life, Jesus Christ himself confirms this in Matthew chapter 19, verse 5. And he said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is God's design for marriage, for the family, for life as human beings. Two individuals, one male, one female, united in marriage for life. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, not wives, and the two shall become one flesh. When we look at a descriptive passage, we should look at the prescriptive passages that tell us how things should be so that we can properly understand them. 
Jacob is not doing right by the Lord by having multiple wives. Though God is using in his sovereignty Jacob's disobedience to accomplish his will, Jacob is still responsible for what he is doing. And he cannot say, I don't know. His father knew better. He could see the dysfunction in his grandpa. Why in the world would he be like, yeah, that sounds good. Let's do exactly the same thing. I wonder if we'll get different results. Jacob has, um, may have been the son of Isaac, but in this chapter, he is walking in the ways of his grandpa, Abram. Because of this, we see the incredible dysfunction and pain that is with his wives. Um, We have one, Rachel's revenge, two, the concubine's compliance, and three, Leah's labor. So as we go into this, uh, chapter 30, verse 1. I called it Rachel's Revenge, but I probably really should have named it Rachel's Envy, but I was operating on alliteration, and that would have messed up the whole thing. So while I say revenge, actually, she does use her, she does use her surrogate children as revenge, but actually, it's a little further on than this point. We start off with Envy. We, all, we, st- we left off chapter 29 with Judah praise. She says, I will now praise the Lord. And in verse one of chapter 30, when Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. Envy. I was actually, um, we're in a hotel and they had some books in there. They actually had Thomas Aquinas's Summa Theologica. Don't fall asleep just yet. Um, and in it, he talks about envy. And the question is, is envy a type of sorrow? And Thomas Aquinas comes to the realization in the book as he's describing this, that envy is the sorrow for another's good. Do you have a problem with envy? Let me ask you a question. Is it easier for you to mourn with those who mourn or rejoice with those who rejoice? Thomas would say that if, you, if it's easier for you to mourn with those who are mourn and you do not rejoice with those who rejoice, it's because your heart is filled with envy. And when you see people rejoicing, you have a sorrow that grips your heart. We, furthermore, we envy those who succeed in the way we wish to succeed. Rachel envies her sister Leah because Leah has given Jacob sons and she wishes that she could. Another thing, Thomas Aquinas wrote about envy is that it is the one deadly sin that it doesn't feel good when you commit it. And that's kind of a dull one, in my opinion. Because you look at the seven deadly sins, uh, wrath, avarice, sloth, pride, lust, envy, gluttony. And every one of them, at least in the moment, it feels good. Like being angry, honestly, feels awesome in the moment. We don't want want to admit it, but it absolutely does. Avarice, and you remember on Wall Street, greed is good, Right? Sloth, pride, lust goes without saying. Gluttony, man, eating those five banana splits is awesome until you're puking your guts out later. But envy, on the other hand, envy makes you feel small, makes you feel petty. It fills you with bitterness. It's like taking poison and waiting for the other person to die. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 26, Paul the Apostle said, let us, become, let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. And we see from this response right here, she has this childish response to her envy. She says, uh, she says to her husband, give me children or I shall die. Of course, you don't need to read Summa Theologica to know to know about envy being one that does not, is not enjoyable. You have uh, Rachel's response here to Jacob. 
It's bitter. It's childish. Give me children or I shall die. Calm down, Veruca Salt. You know, you'll get all the golden tickets. Don't worry. You know, it's, kind of, it's, it's a weird kind of expression because what's Jacob supposed to do? That's above his pay grade. He's doing everything he can do. You know, struggles, they don't just shape and build our character. They also reveal our character. The struggle is real. Her response, however, is very childish. I would remind you, at this point in time in Rachel's life, she is still a pagan. How do we know this? Because when she leaves her father's house, she takes her father's idols with her, or his household gods. She is still a pagan. Furthermore, why doesn't she pray or inquire of the Lord like Jacob's mother, mother did when she was barren? We found out later she doesn't have the faith of Abraham and the faith of Isaac. She tries to steal her father's um, household idols. And Jacob's response, it is equally surprising and not surprising. In verse two, Jacob, um, Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel. And he said, am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? You see in Jacob, uh, we see in Jacob a response here. He hears his favorite wife and he becomes angry. We can understand that he, he isn't God and he, he cannot open a womb or close a womb. So he's doing everything he can, right? Wrong. He's not doing everything he can. Because you know what his father did when his wife couldn't bear children? He prayed. He inquired of the Lord. He prayed for her. He was the priest of his house. Jacob? He doesn't know what that means. He has no concept of being the priest of his house. He's like a modern American Christian man, honestly, unfortunately. No concept of what it means to be the priest of your house. Many men let the wife be the priest of their house, but that's not how God set up the family. So, you know, this is, many men do exactly what Jacob does, is that we don't know what to do, so we do nothing. We run away from it. And I don't know if this is specific with men or women. I'm sure afterwards, gals, you can come up to me. You're like, I'm that way too. But if I'm not good at something or if I don't understand something, I don't do it. Like for instance, you won't ever see me on the golf course. I'm terrible. I'm like really bad. And every time other pastors are like, let's do a golf outing. I'm like, I'm busy. I'm busy whatever day you're going to choose. I will figure out something to do. Because I'm not doing golfing. You guys are going to, you're going to be like, you don't have any, I, I say I'm bad. Okay, you don't understand. I strike out and I play around on the golf cart the whole time. So yeah, yeah. I, if you forced me to golf, I wouldn't be happy either. I'd be like, well, what am I, Tiger Woods? <laughs> I should get him over here. So Jacob has this, this response. Am I in the place of God? You know, his son, his second to youngest son will say, something similar, but it will be in a different attitude. Jacob's been playing God this whole time. He knew about the prophecy of God, so he makes it happen, and he has to compromise his own conscience to do it. He had no problem playing God up until this point. Now comes to this point, and he realizes, no, this is something only God really can do, and I can't. He doesn't know how to be the priest of his home because it's always been about him. And now... His wife, his favorite wife is coming to him. And yes, she's being a bit childish. But what can he do? So he gets upset. He gets angry. He becomes despondent in this because he doesn't know what it means to be the priest of his house. His father, who was not perfect, was the priest of his house. His grandpa was the priest of his house. 
But Jacob, on the other hand, it's a while before he's Isaac. I mean, sorry, before he's Israel. In verse three, then she said, here is my servant Bilhah. Go into her so that she may give birth, um, birth on my behalf, that, that, even, that even I may have children through her. That sounds pretty familiar, right? Isn't that exactly what Sarah did and it didn't work out great with Hagar and Ishmael? There's a reason for this. One, um, uh, Rachel and Sarah are blood relatives, distant, but still blood relatives. They basically come from the same place. They're the Chaldees, Mesopotamia. In Mesopotamia, it was ruled by the Code of Hammurabi-ish. I mean, it's a bit complicated, but I'm not going to get into all that. And the Code of Hammurabi actually has provision for surrogate pregnancy in which you would give your maidservant to your husband as a wife. He would then impregnate her. And then when she gave birth, you'd put the child on your knees and you would say, this is my, this is my son. And this actually something very similar happens with, um, with Ruth, but I'm not going to go into that just right now here. But this is something that Sarah tried to do and we know it didn't happen. And here's the thing. God couldn't care less about the little rules that we make. God's law reigns supreme. And God has already shown disfavor of this method of surrogate, um, sur- surrogate pregnancy. Um, I have an image. It's not part of the chart. What's that the one? All right, All right there we go. Um, I'm not much into memes, but I thought I would uh, try my hand at this. And uh, so we've got Rachel, Bilha, and Jacob. And we have the baby coming from Bilha and Jacob. Now this baby will be related to Rachel through delusion. Nobody buys that this is Rachel's son. Not in the scriptures, nobody. And Leah will do the same thing and she gets the same result. And in the scriptures, it says that they are the sons of Abraham, of Jacob's concubines. She is trying to circumvent the will of God, but God is not blind to these things and he couldn't care less about the code of Hammurabi. He's already rejected this. And under God's law, the marriage bed is to be kept pure. Can I say it again? God doesn't need you to make something happen. He just wants you to be obedient. As we go further in here, we have the concubines in verses four through 13. So verses one through three, we see Rachel, and it is kind of weird. As we go on, we'll find out, yeah, Rachel is trying to get revenge on her sister using children. What a, what a sad thing. Children are not tools. But you know, honestly, neither are these two concubines. These two maidservants of Leah and Rachel, they're used. There are few experiences worse in this life than being used, to being distilled into objects. These two maidservants are used by everyone in this narrative, by Rachel and Leah as tools for their sibling rivalry, by the wider family as baby factories, and both are used by Jacob because Jacob, being the head of the house, could have put a stop to it at any point in time, could have said, absolutely not. Didn't, you, didn't I tell you what happened to Grandpa Abraham? Absolutely not. We can't do this. It's bad enough with what happened, let alone for us to follow into the same bad habits as previous generations. In verse four, we see, um, we see Bilhah um, being given in marriage to Jacob. Verse four, so she, so she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife and Jacob went into her. God has already rejected this with Abraham and Hagar and he rejects it again. Um, I have in here, are they really his wives? 
Now, once in the scripture, they're described as his wives, other times as his concubines, so yes and no. Yes, in a legal sense, they are his wives. When his oldest son um, has a liaison with one of them, it is seen as adultery. Um, Yes, they are in a legal sense his wives, but no, not in any other sense, not in the heart, and not as actual wives on level of Leah and Rachel. In In chapter 35, verse 22 of Genesis, they are called concubines, And in chapter 35, verse 25, their sons are known as their sons, not the sons of Leah and Rachel. So yes, this was a bust for both sisters. Those sons are not their sons. They're only related to them through delusion. The first son, you can go to my chart here and go to the first son right here, whose name is Dan in verses five and six. And Bilhah conceived and bore him a son, Then Rachel said, God has judged me and has also heard my voice and has given me a son. Therefore, she named his name Dan. So we have Dan right here. Dan sounds like the Hebrew word judged. She doesn't know what she's talking about. God is not showing favor. She has a, she has a, a view of God in which you would say a circumstantial view of God. If something good is happening or if my plan is succeeding, God loves me. If my plan doesn't succeed or something bad happens to me, God hates me. This is the view that really sinful man has, is that God is only useful if God does good for me, not if God does bad for me. So she thinks, yes, having this surrogate son is God saying that God has now judged and found me not wanting, but worthwhile. Once again, this chapter, it's telling us what did happen, not what should have happened. Rachel here does not use God's proper name. She uses the more generic name Elohim. Elohim in the scripture can refer to almost anything. Also, Rachel doesn't know what she's talking about. She has a circumstantial view of God. Her plan seems to work. That means that God is happy with her. But here's the thing. Don't speak for God. You don't know. The second son right here, Naphtali, in verses 7 and 8 is the next son and the second son born to Bilhah. Rachel's servant, Bilhah, conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, with mighty wrestling, I have wrestled with my sister. What? What does a baby have to do with their sibling rivalry? You know, it's a sad thing. You see this in families all the time, right? The children are used as weapons against the other person. This might be unique between two sisters, using a child that's not related to either of them against one another. I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali, which means wrestled. We see here the whole point of this ruse. It was revenge against her sister. In verse one, she envies her sister. She is using this boy like a tool of vengeance and children should never be used as tools. With that said, and obviously not great motivations behind all of these things, I would remind everybody that the section of land God gave to the tribe of Nephtali became Galilee, where Jesus Christ came from. The next son right here, Leah wants in on this delusion in verse nine. When Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. So it's not enough that Rachel is 
engaging in this delusion. Leah is wanting in on this too as a way of, of tweaking the nose of her sister in verse 10. Then Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son and Leah said, good fortune has come. So she called his name Gad. What happened to the God-honoring name of, of Judah? You know, it's hard to remember to be God-honoring when we are engaged in acts for which Christ died for. She names him good fortune, although she is doing something that it would not take very, very much for her to understand is not a good thing. In verses 12 through 13, she, the next son born to, to Zelpa is Asher. Verse 12, Leah's servant Zelpah bore Jacob a second son, and Leah said, Happy am I, for, for women have called me happy. So she named him Asher. But what makes her happy? His name sounds like the Hebrew word for happy. So what is making Leah happy? Do you think it's the joy of having another son? Or maybe she is happy at the thought of everyone in this narrative having children, but her snotty-nosed little sister. Everybody gets to have children except for her, for her sister, and she is happy. There is a German word that is used when you are happy at another one's misfortune. If you're playing a board game with me and you are doing badly and I'm doing well, I might say this word. Except if I'm playing Monopoly with Sophia, who just crushed me. And it's schadenfreude. Schadenfreude. It's a happiness at another one's misfortune. I'd submit to you, that's what her Asher means. This son who isn't related to her, now everybody has at least two children and her little sister has no children. And as we go on right here, Leah's labor. You know, it's so easy to forget the things that God teaches us when we are engaged in things that Christ died for. It's so, hard, it's so easy for us to forget the, where we should be when we are involved in this rivalry or in trying to wrestle with other people and forgetting that the true enemy is not the person of flesh and blood. In verses 14 through 21, Leah's labor. In verse 14, we have her son finding mandrakes. In verse 14, in the days of the wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, is it a small matter that you have taken my husband? I'm guessing there's some unresolved issue between the two. Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? Rachel said, then he may, um, then, uh, Rachel said, then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. Verse 16, when Jacob came from the field to the, um, in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, you must come to me for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night. Mandrakes. So once again, what did happen, what should have happened, this is superstition we are about to enter into. There was a superstition of the time that if you made a soup with the mandrakes, it would increase your fertility. Rachel wants that, that, that soup. So according to a couple sources, people in the ancient Near East believed that a soup made for the mandrakes would increase her fertility. Rachel wants these mandrakes. It would appear that she is willing to try anything and everything other than the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac. 
She desires these things and her sister can see she desires them. So her sister then uses that against her. Remember last week I talked about how Leah was the true soulmate of Jacob. I'm going to prove it even more this week. Because remember when Jacob, he was making some red stew, lentil stew. And his brother Esau, he comes in from the field and he's hungry. And he's like, give me some of that red stuff. And Jacob's like, first, give me your birthright. And he says, what is a birthright for me if I die? Doesn't that sound familiar with what we just read? Remember Rachel at the beginning of verse one, she comes to her husband and says, give me children or I'm gonna die. Leah has the same kind of attitude as Jacob because now she sees she'll do anything. She'll do anything to have what she wants. So she convinces her to give her a night with her husband. If you're wondering who's in control of this family, it's not Jacob, it's Rachel. Rachel even has authority over the body of Jacob right here. She gets to decide what night he gets to spend with who, and she gives up a night with her husband because she wants this so badly. Leah, you can just imagine the smirk on her face as she goes out to Jacob and tells him she's hired him. And it's like she's treating Jacob like a prostitute. Jacob is most certainly not in control of his house or even himself. I already told you about Esau and Rachel. Esau may have been the older sibling, Rachel the younger sibling, but both of them are easily manipulated by the sibling who uh, will do anything to get what they want. From this union, we see in verse 17 that God blesses Leah. And God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Re- Leah said, God has given me my wages because I, have, I, gave my son to my, I gave my servant to my husband, so she called his name Issachar. If I was to give a rating of who's the most wrong in this part of the chapter, it's Leah, and she, she, by a wide margin. First of all, she is using the name of the Lord in order to justify the things that she has done. This is blasphemy, by the way. Blasphemy is not just saying the name of God out of context. It is also attributing to God to your own selfish or even sinful motives that God was blessing you with this. She names him Issachar. God, um, God does bless Leah with another son, but not for the reason she thinks. What she thinks was wrong. We have the rest of scripture for that. She, like her sister, has a circumstantial view of God as well. Good things happen, that means God is happy. Bad things happen, that means God is angry. She doesn't think, and then she has the audacity to thank God for her sin. She names him after the word that means wages. In Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Why is she most wrong? She did not earn to have another son. God was not paying her wages. He was giving her grace. And she has no regard for the grace of the Lord. We do this all the time in our own lives, right? Good things happen to us. It's because I've been good. Instead of the grace of God. What's worse is the total rejection of God's grace. When we think we've earned God's blessing, that is wage. It is not grace. When we think God's blessing comes from what we do, that is not grace, it's payment. And we have the same attitude as Leah here. Leah has another son, a sixth son. In verses 19 and 20, 
And Leah conceived again, and she bore Jacob a sixth son. And Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honor me because I have borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulun. So we've got Zebulun on the board now too. And that means honor. She has given up any idea that Jacob might ever love her, but she's still holding out. Maybe he'll honor her. In the ancient Near East, a woman who gives her, son, her husband six sons is a woman of high, high honor. But things are so topsy-turvy in Jacob's house. Big deal. He doesn't really care. And she is hoping, six sons, right? He should honor me now. She needs to remember Judah, right? I will praise the Lord. She even has a seventh child. Seven, the number seven, was a perfect number in the Old Testament. It had significance to it. And we really have no idea whether, God, whether Jacob ever really honored Leah from here. She needs to stick to finding her acceptance, her honor, and her love in the Lord and the Lord alone. She has a seventh child named Dinah in verse 21. Afterwards, she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. It's a sad fact, but this, unfortunately, at least in Leah's mind, not as significant as the sons. She certainly was. Dinah, I mean, Dinah is one of those characters, it's, it's kind of a tragic character in the Bible. We don't know much about her other than the terrible things that happened to her. Um, I had my brother and uh, my, my sister and brother-in-law and my nephew over not terribly long ago, a couple weeks ago. And my brother-in-law reminded me of something I told him. Me and my brother Brent, we were hanging out with him and uh, we were talking with him. And I forgot about this, but each of me, me and my brother at separate times turned to him just dead-faced and said, you hurt my sister and I'll kill you. So Dinah's brothers, they really meant that. She is, uh, she is violated, poorly used, and they kill that guy. They kill his whole family. They kill his people. They probably kill his animals. They really meant that. Worship team, you can come up at this time, at this point. I actually have a fourth point right here. Rachel's redemption. In verses 22 through 24, we see a name of God finally being used by Rachel that she had not used before. In verse 22, then God remembered Rachel and said, God listened to her and said, um, and God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph saying, may the, in your translations, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, Yahweh, the covenant name of God, May Yahweh add to me another son. This is Joseph. And his name is prophetic in two senses. One, she will have another son, Benjamin. And you can put Benjamin on there too. And it means son of my right hand. She initially wanted to name him son of suffering because she dies in childbirth. But his father names him son of my right hand. It is also prophetic in that his name sounds like being carried away, taken away. She said her reproach, but this is the son who will be carried away to Egypt. And this is the son when he says, am I in the place of God is not using it as a way of getting out of responsibility, but of taking responsibility and not standing in the place of God, but allowing grace and forgiveness to flow into what was broken will now be made whole. 
Joseph, Rachel's first son, the one who will save his people, came the way the others did. And here's the overarching thing. Every son, every child that has been born through this entire time right here and all the prosperity of Joseph, it'll be because God has made it so. He used the boy to save his brothers and his family. His name means, may he add, and it sounds like taken away, it's prophetic because God does add a son. And this son right here, Joseph, is carried away until he can save his people. So here's the challenge for you today as we read the scripture. A lot of it is, do not be like. Do not be like Rachel and carry envy in your heart. It's like taking poison and waiting for the other person to die. Give up revenge and know that the Lord is the one who avenges. Trust. Instead of cooperating with this world, instead of cooperating with, the, with our own sinful nature, cooperate with the Holy Spirit. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And finally, lay down your labor. You know, I think it's so sad about Leah. Leah, you don't need to earn anything. You don't need to earn anything. God has already given you his love and acceptance and his blessing. And I see so many Christians, even though God says, take our, to, to put our burden on him, to take his yoke because it's easy and his burden is light. We're like, no, I need to pick up my own. Even though Christ died for it on the cross, I need to pick up my own. And it becomes so heavy, becomes so heavy. And we get so exhausted and God just tells us, just give that up and take my yoke because it's easy and my burden is light. Stop working. This is what happens when we reject the law of God, when we get captured in sin, is it's exhausting because now we are trying to be our own savior because we are trying to create our own law. And as believers, we've, our heart knows this is foolishness and our spirit is screaming at us the whole time. Stop it, stop it, stop it. You're, you've been remade better than this. You've been purchased by the blood of Christ. Take your burden off again and put it on him because he cares for you. Give up on envy, cooperate with the Holy Spirit and lay down your labor. Because at the very end of this, he is Yahweh. He is the covenant keeping God. He is and you are not. And rest in that. Worship team, would you lead us in our final song? This is our moment to respond to the scripture. And all scripture is God-breathed, useful for teaching, rebuke, and instruction in holiness. Including this one. Including this one that just seems like a lot of bitterness, a lot of pettiness. And we see at the end right here, it is Yahweh. He is. And he takes away our reproach. He takes away our striving. And he gives us a new heart and a new mind.